Three years into the Iraq war, the U.S. looked like it was losing its grip on the country. By late 2006, a growing chorus of Americans felt like the war was a lost cause, and a large chunk of the Pentagon agreed with them. According to media reports at the time, U.S. military leaders thought the United States should be stepping away from conducting its own combat operations. Instead, it should focus on supporting Iraqi operations while working to promote economic reconstruction and political reconciliation. But in January 2007, the Bush administration decided it wasn't going to replace its troops with more diplomats and police trainers. Instead, it would respond with a significant scaling up of U.S. military forces, the surge. This is a strong commitment. But for it to succeed, our commanders say the Iraqis will need our help. So America will change our strategy to help the Iraqis carry out their campaign to put down sectarian violence and bring security to the people of Baghdad. This will require increasing American force levels. So I've committed more than 20,000 additional American troops to Iraq. Within months, there were 30,000 more U.S. troops in Iraq, bringing the total number at its height to 168,000. The troop surge stabilized the security situation, and by September, military leaders were touting its success. As a bottom line up front, the military objectives of the surge are in large measure being met. But the surge didn't solve Iraq's problems. Iraqis remained divided, and the political situation stagnated. And although U.S. troop levels dropped from their peak during the surge, the U.S. military remained mired in Iraq for years, facing new challenges and changing to meet them. Welcome to the U.S. in the Middle East podcast miniseries. In this series, we talk to leading experts and former policymakers about the role of U.S. power and influence in the Middle East. I'm your host, John Alterman, Senior Vice President, Zbigniew Brzezinski Chair in Global Security and Geostrategy, and Director of the Middle East Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this episode, we will trace the story of the last 20 years of heavy U.S. military involvement in the Middle East, identifying lessons learned by U.S. forces, partners, and adversaries after two decades of heightened U.S. engagement in the region. I always told military friends of mine, when Hurricane Katrina hits, the mayor of New Orleans doesn't call Foggy Bottom and say, oh, we've just had this catastrophe hit the city. Please send me four ambassadors and a bunch of junior diplomats. That's Elliot Cohen. He told me he spent his career in one way or the other hanging around with the U.S. military. But in 2007, Secretary of State Condoleezza Rice asked him to serve as her counselor. He argues that the success of the surge was a result of the U.S. military doing what militaries do. I came to the State Department when the, the decision was really underway, although I'd been involved in some of the discussions, with, including with the president, over the previous six months. I would say the part of the key to the success of the surge was less the civic action stuff than the sheer military presence isolating the population. I mean, it's a very classic kind of doctrine. 
Corey Shockey served on the National Security Council during President Bush's first term and was the Deputy Director of Policy Planning at the State Department in the second term, teaching at West Point in between. She has a slightly different take. When there's a hurricane, you don't just send the National Guard, <laughs> right? Governors are integrally involved. You surge social welfare involvement. You provide economic assistance that you think about what are we going to do about evacuating people it's not just the National Guard that does evacuation. Civil society does it as well. Fire departments do it. Police forces do it. If you think about how do you get schools open again, we don't have the National Guard figuring out all of those problems. General Joseph Votel spent nearly four decades in the U.S. military and most recently served as the commander of the U.S. Central Command. He says that U.S. policymakers often turn to the military to address problems in the Middle East. I think a part of it was delivering results. You know, there things were getting done. You could see progress. You could see definitive progress through a military lens. And the military did deliver results. Now, in general, our experience over the last 20 years is with particularly elite units of different kinds. We can really achieve tactical successes. And the problem, of course, is that they're always limited and in some cases undone by the broader political context in which you have to operate. Corey Shockey says despite the surge's seeming success, the military sometimes felt that it was fighting a war in its own. In both Iraq and Afghanistan, we were supposed to have whole-of-government strategies, and we surged our military forces without surging our diplomatic intelligence, foreign assistance, civil society efforts, which is what has led many people both in the military and outside it to say with despair, we're not a country at war, we're just a military at war, that we don't care enough to actually create strategies that have integral and mutually supporting elements, we just throw military force at the problem. Part of the reason behind the perception that the United States just throws military force at a problem has to do with the way the civilian side of the U.S. government works. In Iraq and Afghanistan, the United States created joint cells that brought together soldiers, diplomats, agriculture and development experts, legal experts, and other civilians to improve local governance. They called them provincial reconstruction teams. General Votel recalls the idea working better in theory than in practice. The provincial reconstruction team is a good concept, but yet we are unable to sustain that over the long haul. That was a voluntary thing for the diplomatic corps and other interagency partners that were in there. The military is not something that was voluntary, and so we were able to sustain that over time. When you don't have that, then we propense to use military to kind of fill in those gaps. The military also had scale on its side. A $740 billion a year defense budget goes pretty far. And a workforce of 1,200,000 in the active duty and another million or so in the Guard and Reserves, compare that to the size of the Treasury Department's international staff or even the size of the American Diplomatic Corps. So I will compare. 
The United States has fewer than 14,000 foreign service officers worldwide. That's a ratio of 85 soldiers for every diplomat, even if you leave the Guard and Reserves out of the equation. So on the one hand, the sheer size of the U.S. military made them an easy tool for policymakers to turn to. On the other hand, some people think that politicians tried to hide behind the military. They used the military to avoid making hard choices about what they really cared about. Political leaders in the United States use military deployments as a proxy for political will in a way we have done, particularly in the Middle East for the last several years, deployments of Patriot missile batteries to Gulf states, for example, as an unconvincing proxy for our willingness to use military force to protect our interests and the interests of our friends. Despite policymakers' tendency to use the military in the Middle East to solve political problems back home, the United States never set out to fight for 20 years in the Middle East. Nevertheless, doing so has had a profound impact on military operations. One of those impacts was the military's willingness to engage broadly in its fight against terrorist networks. The whole idea of, you know, a network on a network and thinking about your partners and getting them involved, I think has been a very, very helpful thing for us. I think that was a kind of an inherent strength of the special operations community that has now been, I think, embraced much more broadly. But it also strained it. According to Shockey, the volunteer military was simply not designed for 20 years of conflict. It was designed for short, sharp engagements. And yet, I think the most enduring legacy of 20 years of warfare in Iraq and Afghanistan is how amazingly well the all-volunteer force held up for a type of war it wasn't designed for. As the military exits 20 years of conflict in the Middle East, its attention is shifting elsewhere. The public summary of the 2018 National Defense Strategy, the Department of Defense's strategic guidelines, doesn't call for abandoning the Middle East, but it firmly establishes renewed great power competition with Russia and China as the premier challenge for the United States. Here's former Secretary of Defense, Jim Mattis. But in our new defense strategy, great power competition, not terrorism, is now the primary focus of U.S. national security. The shift toward great power competition is drawing U.S. resources and attention away from the Middle East, limiting what the U.S. can commit to the region. The nature and location of security challenges are also shifting, meaning that in many ways, large force deployments in the Middle East just don't make sense to policymakers anymore. With the terror threat now in many places, keeping thousands of troops grounded and concentrated in just one country at a cost of billions each year makes little sense to me. And that's causing the United States to rethink how it engages with the Middle East. The national defense strategy highlights the crucial role that partners and allies will play in advancing U.S. strategic goals. As the U.S. disengages, partners will have to take on more responsibility. Here's General Votel. 
where I think American leadership really plays a role is in promoting more of a, a regional cooperative effort in some of these areas, whether it's counterterrorism or maritime security or integrated air missile defense. And I really think the Abraham Accords, this really provides an opportunity here to do this. Shockey agrees. The Trump administration deserves a lot of credit for that, for getting most of the Gulf states and Israel into visible political alignment for a common threat. That's more of what I mean. But establishing red lines and being willing to enforce them also matters. It is also a demonstration of political commitment to outcomes that you want to see. But U.S. support won't come as a blank check. We have to be willing to provide capabilities for our partners, but we also have to have, I think, very frank discussions with them about the capabilities that they, that they require and that they can sustain long term. And then I think with the provision of that, then I think getting them to a level of capability that so they can reliably operate and have confidence in their own capabilities is really important. It is partly our own fault because we so constantly talk about our superior abilities and military excellence and the amount of our spending, and we trivialize all of those things on their part, when in fact most of America's allies have the strength to fight and win their wars largely without our assistance. U.S. allies and adversaries alike will need to adapt. In some ways, they already learned those lessons back in uh, 1991, which is don't do anything that's really big and provocative because the Americans may actually spin themselves up and drop the heavy hammer on you. So do what you can do ambiguously and do it through semi-covert warfare and surrogates and low levels of violence and, and things of that nature. And the Americans will eventually go away. I think that's what the locals have learned. And I think, by the way, that includes what I think our, our allies have learned too. Adversaries outside the region have also closely watched the United States' example. They will want to avoid the commitments that kept the U.S. bogged down in the Middle East for two decades. What I don't foresee is, is actors like China or Russia stepping into places like Afghanistan and trying to replace a footprint that we had there. I, I think everybody has learned lessons from that, and I don't think there's anybody will be eager to do that. The U.S. military has also learned from the experience. Decades of military activity in the Middle East left military leaders frustrated and with an urgent desire to pull out of the area. Elliot Cohen says that from the military's perspective, 20 years of intense engagement created a hearty disgust with the Middle East and a desire to get away from it. They view the experience in the Middle East as having been not futile, but a tremendous drain on resources and energy and all that. And so like the American public, they're willing to turn in a different direction. Corey Shockey agrees. She says the U.S. military wants to reimagine its role in the region. I think they will want to stop doing almost everything in the Middle East. They will want to stop having to prop up allied war efforts that are unsuccessful and in some cases 
morally dubious in the conduct by countries friendly to the United States and whose efforts are advancing American interests. But of course, the alternative to that is doing it yourself, which they also don't want to do and which political leaders want to do even less than the military. Although the major deployments are over, U.S. interests in the region haven't disappeared and military activity may continue for years. Well, I think we're going to have to deal with terrorism. What we have learned about terrorist organizations is they continue to morph, they continue to change, they continue to adapt, and we should expect that as we move forward. So we are going to have to continue to protect our interests in the region, even though we may not want to, we want to focus on other areas. This is going to be something that's going to constantly pull us back to the area. According to Cohen, no matter how badly the military may want to get out of the Middle East, the region won't allow the U.S. to leave so easily. I've always believed in a variant of Trotsky's favorite dictum that you may not be interested in the dialectic, but the dialectic is interested in you. And you know, the version of this case, you may not be interested in the Middle East, but the Middle East is interested in you. And I think, you know, we're all aware that one way or another, the Middle East has the potential to drag us back in. And the U.S. military's failures in the Middle East won't disappear with the U.S. drawdown in the area. I suppose we'll be more broadly how we tackle if you want to call it counterinsurgency, call it call it that. And there, I, I, unfortunately, I think the tendency will be to say, let's just put this thing behind us. Let's focus on the challenges of the future and assume that we'll never do this again. Of course, that's exactly what we said after Vietnam. And then we found ourselves once again waging counterinsurgency warfare and had to make it up on the fly. And as a result, we were quite poorly prepared for the challenges that we faced in Iraq and Afghanistan. But unfortunately, I think the institutional instinct to forget all that will be pretty overwhelming. In Cohen's view, Vietnam scarred the U.S. military for half a century. The way they dealt with that was by saying, well, we'll never do that kind of thing again. And we will define war as the kind of thing that we feel very comfortable doing. That is to say, large units maneuvering in space that, where there aren't civilians, by and large, to get in the way. And so that's why we'd like to train in deserts. And, you know, really big wars with really neat, clean ends. And instead, the U.S. military found itself embroiled in messy wars that lasted more than a decade with difficult allies, myriad militias, and politicians whose intentions were often murky. Corey Shockey notes that militaries have never been able to remove themselves from the messy realities of politics, no matter how much they want to. They're imagining a past that doesn't exist and hesitant to engage in the messy political swamp of affecting how governments and societies choose to behave. But I don't think that's a, a stable long-term equilibrium because the kinds of threats that continue to bedevil us are emerging from within societies and they are challenges of failed governance. The United States in general and the U.S. military in particular learned a lot from two decades of war in the Middle East, chiefly the limits of relying too much on the military. Here's General Votel. 
I think the final impact is an appreciation for the limited value of the military in terms of what it can accomplish. And I don't mean that, that it cannot do things. It certainly can. But the decisive aspect of resolving the political situations and, and bringing final and lasting solutions to these things is oftentimes not going to be done, if ever, through a military approach. And I think we've learned that in spades over the last 20 years, and I think we'll continue to see that going forward. Those lessons have affected how policymakers view the U.S. military and how willing they are to try and use it to achieve larger political goals abroad. I think in the near term, American presidents will be hesitant to engage in the ambitious undertaking of trying to reshape other societies. The last 20 years have shown policymakers and the U.S. military the limits of using force in the Middle East. Over-reliance on U.S. troops in the Middle East frustrated the military, and it failed to bring lasting solutions to the political challenges plaguing the United States and the region. Policymakers pushed the U.S. military into roles it had no intention of filling and no capacity to fill. Along the way, they changed the U.S. military and they changed the way that the United States engages in the region. Next time on the podcast, we look at the United States economic toolkit in the Middle East and how successful development aid and sanctions have been to address U.S. interests in the region. This is the United States in the Middle East podcast miniseries. I'm your host, John Alterman. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate and review the podcast. To make sure you don't miss any episodes, you can subscribe to Babbel on Apple, Spotify, wherever you listen to podcasts.